0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. This hour we are in the book of Isaiah, and we have arrived at Lesson 26. means we have arrived at chapter 26. Isaiah chapter 26. Unlike the 930 hour and the Wednesday night midweek service in which we are going verse by verse and word by word, sometimes spending two or three weeks on the same verse. Um, this hour, we are doing one chapter per week. The goal is to take 66 weeks to cover the book of Isaiah. and We're going to follow that up with 52 weeks in the book of Jeremiah. And so Isaiah and Jeremiah as back-to-back prophets, and we uh, are, are doing pretty well with it so far. 25 uh, chapters and 25 lessons. Today we move on to a song. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And the song goes like this. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. The steadfast of mind, he will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. This is the basis for stayed upon Jehovah. Hearts are fully blessed. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God we have, or in God the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. All right. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask God the Father to sanctify our thinking, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you. Thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have. Father, we think about so many countries around the world that a Bible church like this could not exist. Not publicly, not out in the open, not in a public building with a sign out front, a website telling everybody where they were. Father, so many places around the world right now where our brothers and sisters are hiding, they're meeting in secret. And Father, we just acknowledge that uh, your grace has provided abundantly on anything we could ask or think and that includes this day and the blessing we have to assemble together to study to show ourselves approved to encourage one another in all the facets of gifts and ministries and effects that you provide Father, i thank you for the prophet isaiah and jeremiah i'm looking forward father to seeing the impact that these books have on the flock of austin bible church we um, our nation may be headed for days that uh, the message of isaiah and jeremiah is going to become very important for us so i pray that we would be humble to receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. Teach us, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We have a hymn, and we're starting this chapter with a hymn. And this chapter tells us the circumstances of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. First thing we want to learn in the process of this, really three broad themes that that I'm going to develop for you this morning out of chapter 26. Starting in the first six verses, the millennium begins with Israel's victorious entrance into a rebuilt Jerusalem. The millennium begins with Israel's victorious entrance into a rebuilt Jerusalem. The song that they sing about, we have a strong city, that could not be sung prior to the rebuilding of Jerusalem because in the tribulation itself, this city is going to fall. In the tribulation itself, the city falls and is trampled underfoot and is uh, given over to the Gentiles for a period of time, a very prophesied period of time that becomes significant if you uh, harmonize your different prophetic context of Scripture. So in that day, the song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates. That the righteous nation may enter. See, they're not yet inhabitants of this city. It, they had fled this city. We're going to see they're under an imperative to flee the city. And yet, when it gets rebuilt, and when Jesus Christ invites the faithful nation to enter into the gates with praise, they're going to do so in fulfillment of this passage right here. A um, couple of things. First of all, and this fits very well. If you've ever done studies in Daniel or Revelation, you understand the uh, elements of the upcoming tribulation. Jerusalem will not, (laughs) underline not, provide safety for the Jews during the tribulation. Some may try, but they are commanded to flee. The city will not form a a place of refuge. Some may try. All right. And we have the promises here in Zechariah 14 and Matthew 24. Our Lord told them this. He said, flee. Don't slow down. Don't even go inside to get a cloak. Flee. Flee. Revelation eleven two and Revelation chapter 12, verse 6 and verse 14. And this makes the case. Now, if the city is strong, typically it is a strategy to endure a siege, to hold up uh, within the walls. And, and if you have food stores within, like Jericho had food stores within, and you've got a water supply within the walls, and Jerusalem had a water supply within the walls because of some aqueducts and tunnels and whatnot, some pools they had uh, engineered if you have food and water, then a lot of times you can survive a siege because the attacking army has to bring food from wherever, from their homeland or other places. They have to feed their soldiers that are surrounding you. And so occasionally it was a strategy to just wait them out, let them uh, starve to death, and then, uh, and then they'll go away and go home, and, and you're fine. Uh, that's assuming, of course, you can endure the siege. If you can't endure the siege, then it's too bad for you, all right? Because then it's really bad. Uh, Your food runs out, your water runs out, uh, cannibalism ensues and other things, and there is no mercy when the walls do fall. When the walls do fall, you pay the price for making the walls fall. You should have surrendered when they first gave you the chance. Because you uh, assigned a siege and you said, no, I don't surrender, there's no chance to surrender later on. When they finally storm the walls... Um, every man, woman, and child is going to be either killed or taken into slavery. That's the price you pay for attempting to withstand a siege. All right? Now, the fall of Jerusalem is seen in all kinds of scriptures, and Jerusalem falls many times. It falls to the Babylonians in 586 BC. It's going to fall again to the, uh, to the Persians. It's going to fall again to the Greeks. It's going to fall to the Romans. It falls to the Romans, first of all, under Pompeii. And then it falls to the Romans somewhat permanently with a with a destruction in 70 AD under general Titus who would later become emperor himself. Jerusalem falls again and again and again and again. Even after it's rebuilt it falls again and again and again and again. You start to wonder can anybody defend this town? All right? It falls in the Middle Ages, it falls to the crusaders, it falls to the kurds, it falls and falls and falls and falls. Finally, I mean, it falls even uh, to, the, to, the, to the British in the context of World War I and uh, the circumstances there. Even the French had dominion over, not Jerusalem itself, but over portions of uh, more north of there, Lebanon and Syria. Even the French conquer here. That tells you something. This is a land that gets conquered because it's in the middle of everything. And they can attack them from the east and the west and the north and the south and, and everywhere. All right, so it should not be a surprise then that um, they should not try to endure a siege in the tribulation. All right, Zechariah chapter 14. Hold your finger in Isaiah 26. We will be back momentarily. But understand this Zechariah 14 verses 2 through 5. Actually, there's a lot of things we glean out of Zechariah 14. Zechariah has such an impact, it's kind of a shame to call him a, a minor prophet. But what are you going to do? All right. Zechariah 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. All the nations. So who does that leave out? Nobody. All right. It's all the nations. I'm trembling now because our, our nation is turning very hostile to Israel. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured. You mean they're not going to win? They can't survive the siege? No, the city will be captured. The houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Why is that? What is their rescue going to be? What is their way of escape? If you're surrounded and there's no way out, how do you get out? Well, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. This is why it's so different between the rapture of the church, where we meet the Lord in the air, and the second advent of Jesus Christ, where he lands on the earth, where his feet touch, and when he lands upon the Mount of Olives. That's a huge, huge difference. When we we meet the Lord in the air at the rapture, he then takes us home to heaven. He takes us to the mansions that he's gone to prepare. And we understand that. Not on this day. On this day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain moves toward the north, the other half moves toward the south. Okay? Think of this as the land equivalent of the uh, dividing of the uh, Red Sea. Right? It's, uh, it's not water, it's land. Nevertheless, half goes that way, half goes that way, and there's a path in the middle. This is the Way of escape, we talk about that with our testing. He provides a way of escape. And where'd this valley come from? See, Satan thinks he's got the place surrounded. Now, here's the way of escape. And uh, you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Ezel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah then Yahweh my God will come and all the holy ones with him that includes you and me by the way if you study Revelation 19 we are dressed in white and the white is the righteous acts of the saints riding on white horses we follow the Lord in the battle in the context of what we're looking at here all right so the city will be fall it will fall it will be captured plundered ravished and uh none of that's very good all right Matthew chapter 24 here's the Lord. All right, Jesus Christ has the same message. In Matthew chapter 24. And this hasn't happened yet. You can't look at it some, you know, you can't look at Zechariah and say, "Oh, well, that's all fulfilled." Or, "Oh, well, that was the Maccabean era." Or, "Oh, well, blah, blah, blah." And they have this this crazy allegorized way to to try to prove to themselves that things have happened that haven't even happened. And Jesus in Matthew 24 says, "It hasn't happened yet, but when it does happen, run." So um, Matthew 24:15, when you see the abomination of desolation, okay, it's not a Maccabean thing, it's not it's not uh, Epiphanies, all right, it's not Antiochus Epiphanies. It is still future from the standpoint of Jesus Christ. When you see it, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And whoever is in, because see, if you stay in Judea, you're doomed. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in the house. This is how fast you want to flee. Don't slow down. Don't take time to even go inside the house and get something you think you need. Just jump off the roof and keep on running. And that's that's the the urgency that we see here. And if you're in the field, don't go back. Don't go back to get his cloak. You're already in the field. You're ahead of the game. Get going. And uh, woe to those who are pregnant. You ever see see a pregnant woman try to run? All right. They kind of waddle and they don't run very fast. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Children will slow you down. Okay. I'm just saying. All right. (laughs) Get in trouble here. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter. Think how bad that's going to be. All right. Or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. That's why this day is unique. Nothing like it before or after ever again. It is the one and only unique, great and terrible and awesome day of the Lord. And unless those days had been cut short, this is why God is so gracious. There is a calendar. There is a prophetic calendar. That calendar is two and a half, it's two, uh, three and a half years. Time, times, and half a time. It's 1,260 days. We can count it. And yet... God cuts it short. He comes back early. He comes back like a thief. Okay? Well, how short? That's the key. We don't know. <laughs> they don't know. How short? Well, short enough. Okay? And if you endure to the end, that's what that's about. Now, unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Here's first time in human history the potential to kill all human life on the planet And yet God does not let that happen. If you have friends, loved ones, or enemies, or people that, neighbors, co-workers, anybody you know is terrified that we're going to blow up the world and kill everybody on the planet, just uh, help them relax. God won't let that happen. He'll let it come close, because he's going to kill them all anyway when he returns at Armageddon and when he sends the unbelievers to hell. Only believers get to enter the millennium anyway. So if the bulk of them all die in the wars leading up to that, that's not an issue, at least for thwarting the plan of God, but for the sake of the elect, you understand. Those days will be cut short. So even prior to day 1260, Jesus Christ will descend and uh, his feet will land on the Mount of Olives. Revelation eleven two 2 and Revelation 12, 6 and 14. Revelation 11. This is kind of fun. Get a little preview here. I'm going to Ukraine in a couple weeks and teaching Daniel and Revelation. So today we'll serve as a warm-up. Get my Daniel Revelation juices flowing here. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. This is Revelation chapter 11. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. But then he goes to say, leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure that, for it has been given to the nations, to the Gentiles, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. What's 42 months? Three and a half years. That's right. 12, 12, and 12 is 36, and add six more, you get 42 months. It's also 1260 days. It's also time, times, and half a time. There's many ways to express this time period. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. Look at that. Clothed in sackcloth. Aspects of it there. Over to chapter 12, verse 6 and verse 14. This great uh, uh, pictorial chapter here, where the symbolism of this chapter gives you a panorama of Israel's history. And in 12.6, we talk about the dragon who appears. We talk about the woman. This is not the Virgin Mary. It's not the church. This is Israel. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head uh, a crown of 12 stars. Remember, sun, moon, and stars applies to Israel. It was a dream that Jacob had. Or Joseph, I'm sorry. Joseph had that dream. She was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Israel birthed the Christ. The church didn't birth the Christ. Israel birthed the Christ. And here's the dragon. His tail swept away a third of the stars. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child course, the dragon wants Jesus dead, and Herod mur- murders all the babies in Bethlehem in an attempt to uh, derail the plan of God. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Talked about that rod of iron last week. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Holy smokes, that went by pretty fast. Look at that. Wow, she gives birth, and he's caught up to God and to his throne. Well, what about the baptism and the walking on water and the miracles and the ministry and the cross and the resurrection and the, all of that is just one little verse. She gives birth to the child. The child's caught up to God and to his throne. Okay? That's why this is a panorama. We want to understand the symbols. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Why do we keep talking about that 42 month, three and a half year time period? Same chapter, down to verse. 14. Here we get Michael who stands up to wage war. He's the defender of Israel. Get down to verse 14. So here's what happens. At this point, Satan is expelled from heaven and uh, he's no longer seen. Now today you and I, you know, you and I can be accused all day long. Satan goes to heaven all the time to file complaints and grievances and lawsuits and all kinds of grumbling that goes on that accuses us of all kinds of nefarious things. But that's coming to an end. His access to the courts of heaven is about to be revoked, and he will be committed to the earth, and he won't be happy about that. Uh, So it says, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath knowing that he is only a short time, 1,260 days, okay? And that's if he's expelled at the midpoint, all right? And and actually less than that, because we don't know how soon Christ comes when he cuts it short. So when he's thrown down to the earth, he persecutes the woman who had given birth to the male child. He becomes dedicated to Israel's destruction. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness And she's going to be nourished there for time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. All right, there's a whole lot more there in terms of eschatology and prophetic studies beyond what we're going to deal with today. Simply understand, Jerusalem falls in the tribulation. Jerusalem will be conquered by Antichrist. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot. And so when we're singing this song from Isaiah 26... Thou shalt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. When we're singing uh, Like a River Glorious, all right, we're singing about the rebuilt Jerusalem and the peace that is brought about through military victory. Peace through military victory, not through negotiated settlement with um, a bunch of psychopaths. All right. First thing to notice, it's going to be rebuilt because it provides no safety for the Jews during the tribulation. And when they are invited to enter... Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. Israel is called the righteous nation. The one that remains faithful. No wonder he who sits in the heavens laughs, right? The one who remains faithful. The faithful nation, the only faithful nation at the end of the millennial kingdom is going to be Israel. The Jewish nation at the end of the millennium when the whole world is in rebellion against Jesus Christ. Did you know that? I taught this last week. The millennium ends in a failure. Jesus Christ sits on his throne for a thousand years, at the end of which they demand that he step down. They demand Satan's release out of the pit. All right? They demand Satan's release. They don't want Jesus reigning over them anymore. And he gathers, the, the number that he gathers together is like the sand of the seashore. The world will hate the reign of Jesus Christ at the end of the thousand-year reign. And what's the one nation that stays faithful? Well, right here, it's called the righteous nation, the one that remains faithful. And so if you read about the Gog-Magog rebellion at the end in Revelation chapter 20, it's pretty clear that the peoples of the earth are, are arrayed against Jerusalem for the final time. So the faithful nation remains true to the Lord at the end of the millennium, physically secure and mentally secure mentally secure and uh we have of course verse 2 i think verse 3 i don't know why that's i put verse 11 in there except that fire will devour your enemies and fire ends the gog magog rebellion at the end of uh, revelation chapter 20 but understand the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace are there armies outside your city don't be worked up about it. God's in control in the millennial kingdom. This is the application, you understand. Um, there comes a time in Isaiah's ministry when an army will be outside the city. It's going, to be, it's going to be the Assyrians surrounding Jerusalem, and King Hezekiah is going to have a gut check moment. He's going to have to decide, wait a minute, uh, what do I do here? And Isaiah is going to have a powerful ministry to his king to comfort and encourage him during this time. We'll have that coming up. So the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. The best security of all is the mental steadfastness and the perfect peace. And uh, we just sang about it in our hymn. Uh, It's also promised in the New Testament. It's promised to believers. This is something you and I can have daily. We don't need an army surrounding our city today. We've got enough uh, conflict with the fallen angels and demons and unbelievers and everything else going on. We better have our hearts and our minds guarded in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, verse 6 and verse 7. Philippians 4, verse 6 and verse 7. The reason why you can be anxious for nothing is because the Lord is near. You know, you back up and you see in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. I love that. The opposite of nothing and everything. And he combines the two. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the consequence. If you have a biblically appropriate prayer life, here's the consequence. The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. It's a powerful peace and it comes upon you and you can't even understand it because it surpasseth comprehension. But you sure know it when when it's happening and it feels good. (laughs) Okay, I'll tell you that. The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Oh, there's so much we can preach with this. But the stability of soul, the stability of thinking... To be protected like this, this is why it, just, it bugs me to tears, the folks that bear their souls, to unbelievers, to folks that that, have no, that aren't entitled to your soul. And then they go to whatever, they engage in some kind of a Freudian process, and they're going to bear their soul to someone that's not entitled to it. Scripture says it needs to be guarded. And you've got a shepherd, and you've got a flock, and you've got the Word of God, and you've got prayer. There is a, a, a biblical model for the care of souls, and it's not uh, one hundred and twenty dollars per billable hour. A billable hour, all right. It's the stability of the Word of God and a shepherd, the Great Shepherd, plus the knucklehead he assigns in the in the local flock. All right, the biblical care of souls, because your heart and your mind need to be protected, guarded by the peace of Christ. The millennium is going to feature the final opportunity for the wicked to operate under God's grace and to learn about God's righteousness. The millennium will feature the final opportunity for the wicked to operate under God's grace and to learn about God's righteousness. If you think about it, How many stewardships have the wicked been blessed with? The the Gentiles had a stewardship. The Israel had a stewardship. Now the church has a stewardship. Israel will be restored to their stewardship. In the millennial kingdom, we have the final opportunity. Remember, God desires for none to perish, but for all to come to eternal life. And the millennium will be the final opportunity for the unbelievers that walk this earth to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because there will be no unbelievers on the next earth. In the new heavens and the new earth, there are no unbelievers. Remember, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. No unbeliever enters the new heavens and the new earth after the millennium. It's a final opportunity. Sometimes we talk about that. What's what's one thing you can't do in heaven? You can't evangelize. There is no evangelizing going on in heaven because there's no unbelievers there for you to preach the gospel to to get them saved. All right. In verses seven through ten, it's kind of interesting here. I didn't really get into four through six, did I? Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. And see, this is the thing: we have a rebuilt fortress after the after the tribulation, a rebuilt fortress to start the millennium. You know, if the millennium is everything people think it is, you don't need a fortress, okay? But the millennium is not what everybody wants it to be. You know, it's not flowery beds of ease. It's not universal peace. He rules with a rod of iron, and his people are safe and secure inside a fortress. All right. He has brought low those who dwell on high, the unassailable city. Saw them in the last couple of chapters. He lays it low, he lays it low to the ground, he casts it to the dust. The foot will trample it, the feet of the afflicted, the help, the steps of the helpless. And it's really as interesting. Even the crippled, the lame, they're going to be strengthened like a mighty man, and even the the blind and the deaf uh, are going to have victory over. They're going to become the greatest uh, warriors for Armageddon. All right, verse 7 then. The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Think about what it's going to be like to rule with to, to to live with perfect government, perfect environment, the way of the righteous is the way that's rewarded. Nowadays the world we live in is almost backwards. It's almost like uh, the, the, the biggest the bigger pervert you can become, the the, the more you're gonna be celebrated and protected in in the courts and in the and the universities and everything else. Not so in Jesus Christ's millennial reign. It's going to be the way of the righteous that will conform to his administration. Indeed, while following the way, your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. Come, desire of nations, come, right? This is the, the desire of women. This is the anticipation of the coming Christ, at night my soul longs for you, indeed my spirit within me, this is verse 9, seeks you diligently. You know, the anticipation here, Isaiah slips a little bit into the first person at this point. He, uh, he's, yes, he's still talking about the future millennium, but he's really, he, he addresses in this stretch of the text, he addresses his own thought, his own attitude, what's going through his mind as these visions are given, as he's speaking of the coming millennium. You imagine he's just drooling, <laughs> prophetic drool. That The prophet is just, he can't imagine living in a world where, you know, like I say often, that the, the name of my Savior is not profanity, where they don't just hit their thumb with a hammer and shout, Jesus Christ, because they're mad, right? I'm looking forward to that. He's looking forward to that. What do you daydream at night? What do you, what do you anticipate? What are you craving? For him, it's the coming of the Christ. At night my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. The judgments of God are instructive and the opportunity is there for the wicked to repent, for the wicked to learn and to come to Christ. What's evangelism going to be like in the tribulation? What's evangelism going to be like in the millennium? You know, nowadays we tell people, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We tell people, you know, Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead. In the millennium, we're going to be able to say he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, and he's seated on David's throne in Jerusalem. Right here, right now, he's ruling this world with a rod of iron. And will it be any easier to preach a gospel um, urging, begging, imploring an unbeliever to believe in Christ unto eternal life, but the Christ who is their king, seated on David's throne. I suspect not. I suspect not. I suspect we would think, well, isn't it easier if you can see? Right? And yet Jesus said, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Ever ever consider that verse in a millennium context? All right. So though the wicked is shown favor, He does not learn righteousness. Isn't that sad? Think about how much grace the unbeliever receives today. And he hates the God of grace that's given him all that grace. The benefit that unbelievers have, particularly living in a Christian nation, particularly living in lands of freedom, as where we live, right? Read Rodney Stark sometime and read about the benefits of freedom. How Christianity benefits America, even the atheists. Okay, The atheists are benefited by a population of citizens that holds to a religious truth that says, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not. You know, because we operate under biblical principles, even the atheist is benefited in our culture. I don't get commissions on that. I just recommend the book. It's well worthwhile. Though the wicked has shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. You're looking right at it. And you don't perceive it? You ever been told, well, God needs to, if God wants me to believe in him, he needs, just needs to come to earth and show me. Has anybody ever told you that? I've heard that. I've heard that several times. And, 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 and he's done that? He already did that once. Once and for all. You want him to come and personally do that for you? Who do you think you are? Alright? He did that. We have the record of that. You just don't want to accept it. Even if you knew it was true, you wouldn't accept it. You wouldn't trust in it. That's why I think there's a lot of unbelievers out there that know Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. They just don't care. They're not going to accept that. They don't want to accept that. They've told me that well, I didn't ask him to die for me. I'll pay for my own sins. I'm a good I'm a good person. <laughs> All right. And you know what? I'm not here to debate that. I'm not here to argue. I'm not here to debate. I'm not here to talk about any of that. I'm here to give an account to any who might ask. So come back and find me again when, when your heart softens, when you change your mind, when you start to think that maybe you're not all right and you need a Savior. Then come back to me and I'll, I'll have an answer for you. But in the meantime, I'm not here to cast my pearls before a swine. I'm not here to cast what is holy to the dogs. It's not for you. I don't want to get trampled anyway, so... All right. The millennium will feature is the final opportunity. The millennial reign of Jesus Christ is the final opportunity. Because when this comes to an end, it's all over. When the millennium is over, it's all over. The earth, the heavens, everything, the entire created universe explodes. All physical material existence explodes into great heat. All matter becomes energy within the bounds of existence, physical existence. And we uh, proceed to the great white throne judgment. So, um, recognize this though. Israel will operate in their stewardship responsibilities to the nations. Israel will be the faithful evangelistic nation. Israel will testify, not just from the Hebrew canon of Messiah is coming, but from the Hebrew canon and the Greek canon, our New Testament as we call it today. They also will speak with prophetic utterance regarding the things to come that the... new heavens and new earth after the millennium. Israel will operate in their stewardship responsibilities to the nations. They will give the invitation of Isaiah 55, which we'll see in about 30 weeks. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You see, the price has already been paid why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Listen that you may live. You get down to verse 5 here and it says, Behold, you will call a nation you do not know and a nation which knows you not will run to you. Just, just whistle, just call, just snap your fingers. They come running. Because the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. At least at the beginning of the thousand years, you're going to come running. It's going to get further and farther between as the thousand years progresses. Over to Isaiah chapter 60, you got verses 1 through 14. Arise and shine. Your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Nations will come to your light. Kings, to the brightness of your rising. Kings are going to come. Multitudes are going to come. Israel is going to have a stewardship. A stewardship they should have had all along. A stewardship they were commanded to exercise in the Old Testament, and yet they typically failed. Instead of being a witness of holiness and influencing the Gentile nations around them, instead they ended up going after the Gentile nations around them, pursuing idolatry, pursuing sin, being polluted by all kinds of defilements. Jesus Christ won't let that happen. He won't let that happen, all right? I'm thinking here in the interest of Tom, I may have to love to read this whole chapter, but this is chapter 16. and we'll be there in about 35 weeks. Um, hmm. All right. Joel, 2.28. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. You get to Amos and Obadiah, you've gone too far. Joel two twenty eight. This is not the day of Pentecost to start the church. This is the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Despite people's confusions when they preach Acts chapter two. Joel two twenty eight says it will come about after this. Context of Joel chapter two is the tribulation of Israel. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. That didn't happen at Pentecost. All mankind didn't get the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Only the upper room Christians received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Who's your son and your daughters in this context? Speaking to the prophet Joel, Israel, the Jewish people. The Jewish people will not only have a stewardship to the Gentile people, they will be in prophetic office. They will be in prophetic office. All right? So, your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit on those days. Israel will operate in the prophetic office for the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now think about that. They've got Hebrew Scriptures. They've got Greek Scriptures. They've got what we would call today Old Testament and New Testament, right? And more. Because they will have prophets. They're going to have animal sacrifices as per the Ezekiel Temple. Why have prophets and why have animal sacrifices if you are not looking forward to something yet to come? And that's the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Finally, Zechariah chapter 8. I told you we'd be back in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 20 through 23. Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Zechariah chapter 8. Oh, I miss these. We taught the minor prophets once. There's 12 of them. We took a prophet of the month. We took a year to teach the minor prophets. Oh, there's some good doctrine in these books. All right. People ignore them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Tsevayoth, it will be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. What's the number one vacation spot on planet Earth today? Depends on the, depends on what magazine you're reading or what was that. Some folks say it's France, all right? But there's others, New York City, other places. Well, guess what? Jerusalem will be the number one destination, and not for leisure, not for fun and games, for doctrine, to be taught the Word of God Let's go up to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. So many peoples and mighty nations will come and seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and do entreat and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Yahweh, in those days, ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew. Jewish people are going to be in high demand <laughs> because they're the ones with the prophetic gift. They're the ones that have stewardship to the Gentiles ten to one 10 men will grab the garment of a Jew saying let us go with you for we have heard that god is with you nowadays it's just the direct opposite everybody's all mad at the jews why don't you surrender why don't you just lay down and let the muslims kill you and, you know that's the solution to the middle east problem is just kill all the jews and give it to the give it to the muslims well, it's going to be a little bit different the millennial reign of jesus christ don't you know the millennium will close with every living and dead unbeliever cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. See, this is their final opportunity. Their final opportunity. I, I like to preach this in funerals that I preach. The gospel is an everlasting gospel, and the gift is everlasting life. But your opportunity to believe that gospel is not eternal. <laughs> your opportunity to receive Christ is very finite. Your opportunity to receive Christ might end today. We don't know how many days we have. And so, if I'm preaching a funeral, I'm talking about someone whose physical life has come to an end, I like to challenge the people that are sitting right there. Say, today might be your turn. When when are you leaving this planet? The gospel is an eternal gospel. The gift is eternal life. But your opportunity to accept that gospel and receive that eternal life is not an eternal opportunity. It is a very finite opportunity. The time of your physical life on earth and in the millennium it's the final finite opportunity. Because at the end of the millennium, every living and dead unbeliever is going to be cast into the lake of fire. Every living and dead unbeliever. Scouring the globe for all the living unbelievers, but then resurrecting every unbeliever that ever walked this earth. From Cain... Remember Cain and Abel? From Cain all the way to the end of the millennium, every unbeliever that's ever walked this earth is going to be resurrected again to stand, to bend the knee, to confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then they will be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. With reminders. Reminders in chapter 21 and chapter 22. 21, 8 and 27, 22, 15. Look those up as you have time. because we have the third part of the chapter I want to get to. Verses 11 through 21. So again, verse 10, though the wicked has shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. These angry, arrogant, unbelievers. And they they, they, they hate the God who gave them the air they're breathing and cursing them with. They do not perceive the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, verse 11, yet they do not see it. They see your zeal for the people and are put to shame. It really, really bugs them that Israel is the chosen people. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies. And this is what closes the millennium. It destroys the Gog Magog rebellion. Lord, you will establish peace for us, since you have also performed for us all your works. Here's a blessing. If you look back at what he's achieved... And you've got confidence in what is still to come. Look what what he's achieved. You've also performed for us all our works. You've never once let us down. So we know moving forward, you're going to do it. You will establish peace for us. O Lord our God, other masters besides you have ruled us. See, Isaiah has the right story on this. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were all kinds of confused. They were saying, you know, Jesus said, you will know the truth. The truth will make you free. And they're all living in denial, saying, we've never been slaves to anybody. (laughs) Well, they were in bondage in Egypt. They were oppressed by the Philistines. They were oppressed by the Midianites. They were um, taken captive by the Babylonians. Before that, they were laid siege by the Assyrians. They were conquered by the Persians, and, and Xerxes tried to wipe them out. They were conquered by the Greeks, conquered by the Romans, conquered in their city, leveled by the Romans. O Lord our God, other masters besides you have ruled us. All right, they were under a British mandate for a while. They were under, it seems like there's all kinds of UN resolutions that are uh, uh, written against them and so forth. And now we've got a president that's going to be hostile to them and going to uh, not stand in the way of a terrorist state. But through you alone we confess your name. The dead will not live. The departed spirits will not rise. Can you imagine the mocking of the promised resurrection? Therefore you have punished and destroyed them, and you have wiped out all remembrance of them. Everyone that denied the promises of Scripture, they're going to be destroyed. Yes, the dead will live. Yes, the departed spirits will rise. You look at verse fourteen and it's contrasted to verse nineteen. Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the earth, of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the Raphaim, the departed spirits. So here we are. We preach resurrection. Two weeks we're two weeks out now from Easter Sunday. We preach resurrection. And this world thinks we're the kooks, we're the goofy ones. We're the morons. We're the dum-dums. Okay? And all the other things, the name-calling that goes on on different things. <laughs> okay? Well, we'll see. Because God is true. God is true. Um, goodness. Verse 15, You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have extended all the borders of the land they will have the complete Abrahamic land grant that they were promised. Briefly, they had most of it under Solomon, but even there, I don't think they had all of it that it was promised to Abraham. They will when Jesus Christ reigns from the Nile to the Euphrates. That's Israel. O Lord, they sought you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. Are you so distressed that the only voice you can muster is just the tiny little croak of a whisper? Your chastening was upon them. See, this is what the tribulation of Israel is all about. God is chastising his people to humble them so that they will accept him as their Messiah and not reject him as they did in his first advent. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her labor pains. Thus were we before you, O Lord. I mean, once it starts, what are you going to do? You <laughs> you're going to have a baby, that's what you're going to do. Once it starts, okay? It's you you're going to that's going to go its course. You're going to finish it out. Um, we were in we were in, we were pregnant. We were out in labor. We gave birth as it seems only to wind. As far as all their struggles were concerned, what they could achieve was nothing. We gave birth as it seems only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. So long as Israel attempts to achieve what they attempt to achieve through their own merit, through their own works, through their own human effort, nothing. The nation of Israel will be like the book of Ecclesiastes, striving after the wind. But the moment that they repent and humble themselves and look upon him whom they pierced, then look out because the labor pains will finish. That baby will be born. And that baby is the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that's not the wind. They're going to sing for joy as that baby is birthed. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. And it's not just this generation. It's not just the, the remnant that survives the tribulation. It's every believing Jew from Abraham onward. This this kingdom was promised to Abraham just because he's in the grave. Do you think that's going to stop him from enjoying this promise of God? No. They're going to be resurrected. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, every believing Jew, King David, every believing Jew, Daniel, all of them, Moses, all the believing Jews from the Old Testament are going to be resurrected to enjoy the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. All right. All right. A final warning there in verses 20 through 21 as the prophet Isaiah returns back to his own day and age. Application they can make during the Assyrian affliction. All right, here's some points of study. First of all, denial of the resurrection and denial of accountability before God go hand in hand. Denial of the resurrection and denial of accountability before God go hand to hand, hand in hand. Why do they deny the resurrection? Because they don't want to stand before their maker and give an account. They don't want to answer to the one with whom we have to do. That's why they want to embrace Big Bang, they want to embrace annihilationalism, they want to embrace everything that says, when I'm dead, it's over, done. There is no resurrection. There is no afterlife. There is no heaven. There is no God because I don't want there to be a God. The God your Bible preaches, I don't like very much, so therefore, because I don't like Him, because I hate Him, I'm going to declare over and over and over again that I don't believe He exists. And it goes hand in hand. And yet never do they express such hatred for anything else they don't believe in. They, 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 they don't believe in the Easter Bunny, they don't believe in the Tooth Fairy, they don't believe in Santa Claus, they don't believe in whatever. But you never see these militant marches of anti-tooth fairy uh, haters. You don't find conferences of anti-Easter uh, you know Easter Bunny haters that create their... Like, like you have with the atheists. You cannot hate what you don't believe exists. I believe that it's only the fool who said in his heart that there is no God. And the militants that stand and defiantly say there is no God are actually testifying, confessing that they don't like the God they know is there. They are made in God's image, all of creation testifies, and they are without excuse. It's the same thing in our day and age. Second Peter chapter 3, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own ungodly lust. So it's not a surprise what motivates them. Not a surprise at all what motivates them. I gave the gospel to a co-worker once and he said, no, he says, that's horrible. Your Bible wouldn't let me live with my girlfriend that I'm living with right now. Okay, well, there's a good reason to die and go to hell. How about <laughs> we get you saved, we get your girlfriend saved. Get you married, start glorifying Christ. Anyway, Second Peter chapter three. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, "Where is the promise of His coming? Oh, you pre tribbers Oh, you rapturous, you are such fools. For ever since the the fathers fell asleep all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. We've got this uniformitarian worldview going here. And yet, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. There is so much testimony to catastrophism all across the solar system. It's everywhere to look at, if you care to look at it. And it escapes their notice that uh, God's already destroyed this world by water. Next one's going to be destroyed by fire. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. The destruction of ungodly men. That's what it comes down to. They're ungodly and they don't want to answer to the one that they have to answer to. So let's just deny. There is no resurrection. There is no God. They go hand in hand. Let's see. We know better. We know better. Understand redemption and resurrection. What a, what a blessing for us. Redemption and resurrection have been blessed doctrines. I can prove it from the New Testament. I can prove it from the Old Testament, the Greek Canon, the Hebrew canon, and before there ever was a canon, Job knew about the resurrection. He said, "I know that my redeemer he knows about redemption and resurrection." Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. Before there even was a canon, redemption and resurrection were hallmarks of faith in the Lord God. If I had more time, we'd go through all these. Goodness. John 5, 28, and 29. Look at those when you get home, you get a chance. There's the resurrection of life, the resurrection of judgment. Believers go to the first, unbelievers go to the second. 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection, verses 20 through 23, verses 35 through 49. It's sown, it's raised. Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, where we are seated on thrones with Christ, judging the Old Testament saints. The Hebrew canon, we've got our passage today in Isaiah 26, 19. We've got the dry bones chapter of Ezekiel 37, verses 12 through 14. Daniel 12, 2, that also is a two part resurrection believers and unbelievers. Hosea 13:14. Don't go to Hosea very often. Ah, but Hosea 13:14, that's where we get the oh death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Okay? We're used to it because it's quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, but it comes from Hosea. It comes from the minor prophet. Redemption and resurrection. We should be preaching them both. We should be preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified, the risen savior. In fact, denial of the resurrection makes Christianity meaningless. Denial of the resurrection makes Christianity meaningless. This is the whole point of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19. You realize how we're wasting our time, how stupid we are to serve Christ if salvation is only for this life? If if salvation is only for this life and there is no resurrection, what are we doing? Life is short, play hard. <laughs> we ought to adopt the Nike philosophy. Was that Nike? Life is short, play hard. One of those. I don't know. Shoe commercials during football games. First Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19. If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection from the dead? It just boggles the mind. There is no more his, uh, factually documented historical event in human history than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think about it. We are just as certain of his bodily resurrection as we are of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the death of uh, Herod Augustus. More testimony, more evidence, more documentation. There is, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, how can we count on a resurrection? If the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 16, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. What good do you have of being saved and having your sins forgiven and having eternal life if that eternal life is mortal? Temporary. And only lasts until you're in the ground. Your faith would be worthless. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. No. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. If all there is is this life, then, then biblical Christianity is pretty stupid. That's what this text is saying. Finally, the untaught, unstable, and unprincipled. Let me wrap this up with Second uh, Peter chapter 3. There's a trinity here. What do you call these guys? The un, un, un guys. The un, un, un crowd. Second Peter chapter 3. And this is great. This is, this is so great because Peter is referencing the, the writings of Paul and his doctrinal development. I usually skip over these verses when I recite according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, look at that. Here's the Apostle Peter. Here's the first Pope. <laughs> no, not really. But here is Peter, and he flat out says, you know what? Paul's epistles are tough. You got to work at it. You got to study to show yourself approved. You got to put Scripture together with Scripture. You got to compare this to that. You better be spirit indwelt. All right, and spirit filled. Notice, though, which the untaught and the unstable distort. There's our first two uns, the untaught and the unstable. What's the difference? That's sad. The unstable actually has been taught. Why are they still unstable? That breaks the heart. They've been taught. What are they doing with it? Nothing. They've been taught, but they're still unstable. They can't say they're untaught. But they can say they're unstable. The untaught and the unstable. Our third un comes in the next verse. The uh, unprincipled. In verse 17, being carried away by the air of unprincipled men. So we've got untaught, unstable, unprincipled. We've got three uns in these verses, and we've got we to gotta go toe-to-toe against these guys. We've got to resist these guys. We've got to throw them out of here. They're harmful to the flock the untaught, and the unstable. Notice, though, they distort. They don't like what the Bible says, so they change what they want it to say. They change it. They deny that's what it says. Well, it's just your interpretation. I think it means this. Untaught, unstable, and they're distorting. Notice, as they do the rest of Scriptures. This is how canonicity defines itself. This is how the, the text of Second Peter defines that the writings of Paul are canonical. They are scriptures along with the rest of scriptures. And they do so to their own destruction. Add to the word of God, take away from the word of God, you come under destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. If you tolerate instability, then others will get carried away. but grow in the grace and knowledge. Now that's where I typically pick up my quote. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can't grow with the un un And isn't it interesting? Their favorite scriptures to distort are the eschatological passages. Eschatological passages. And I've had folks say, why do you focus on prophecy? Why? Who cares about prophecy? Who cares? You preach too much doctrine. We need love. Really? How are you going to do that without the doctrine of love? <laughs> okay, And eschatology grounds us. That's what keeps us diligent. Because I know the trumpet can sound today. And I'm not just going to goof off for whatever length of time. And No. The imminent return of Christ is a goad. And I'm not going to let the untaught, undisciplined unprincipled derail what we're doing here in this flock. So, if you find folks are twisting the scriptures around, if they're going to try to allegorize, if they're going to try to make it all figurative and all spiritualized, and they're going to say, well, now the church has Israel's promises, don't let them get away with it. We wouldn't let that happen in in the earthly world right? You, you, you can't possibly claim to be faithful to your marriage vows if someday down the road, you decide to transfer it from one wife to another wife and say, well, yeah, I know I made promises, but I'm, I'm keeping it with this girl instead, so I'm, I'm good. But you made your promises with that girl. You can't transfer your vows. God made eternal promises to Israel he can't keep those to Israel by keeping those with the church. No, eschatology is very important. The very uh, and 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 to figureize these things and to to dismiss them as well it's just metaphor. Well, that's not real. Well, don't take that literally. Okay. But they are you telling me that Jesus died on a cross and your sins are forgiven? You don't want to allegorize that? You don't want to throw that away? You, you just, you're picking and choosing what verses you, you trust? What are you doing? Father, I thank you for truth. And I thank you that you are the God of truth who cannot lie. And Father, you put it in writing. Gagrapti, Jesus said, it is written. Three times he answered his critics. He answered his temptation by, by Satan. With Gagrapti, It is written. And I thank you that your word is written. In a Hebrew canon, in a Greek canon, it eternally stands, Father. And I do thank you for that. What a blessing. I thank you, Father, that we have eternal life in Christ. And the eternal life is secure because of the faithfulness of the one who promised. I do pray, Father, for anybody here that does not know Christ, that has not received eternal life. And I pray for folks that have been taught but maybe are not yet stable. Why is that? The Word of God is able to provide the stability. We're not to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We're to be stable. So Father, I pray that each one of us would be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Thank you for equipping us. Thank you for feeding us. Teach us, continue to keep on teaching us, Father. We've learned it academically. We've sung about it. Let us now live it the steadfast of mind, the perfect peace. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we will conclude with our closing hymn.